Our reading from Scripture this morning is from the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be reading the whole of chapter 11 into the beginning of verse 12. So uh, settle and sit comfortably. The meaning of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteousness, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received the power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful, who had promised... Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith, without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named after you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked blessings for the future on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the top of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his burial. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not without us be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a rather odd day in the church's calendar when New Year's Day falls on a Sunday. Because in church terms, of course, this isn't the new year. That's the beginning of Advent, when we start to tell again the whole cycle of the Christian narrative. We go through the waiting and the preparing. We go through the story of the birth. Technically, Christmas lasts at least until January the 6th when we reflect on the coming of the Magi, Feast of the Epiphany. Jesus is recognized by the world. And then we move on towards and into Lent and then Easter and then Pentecost and then what's delightfully called ordinary time when we examine the teachings of Jesus, the wider tradition, we reflect on discipleship, on faithfulness in the world, on the coming of the kingdom. 
So last Sunday, we celebrated incarnation, the birth of the Christ child, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Next week, we will reflect on Epiphany, on the arrival of the Magi, the recognition of Jesus as the one who was promised, his encounter with the whole world, not just his own people. But what's today? Well, it's kind of betwixt and between. Jesus has been born. Given that Christmas seems to last more than just Christmas Day, but kind of starts early in Advent, we might feel that just at the moment we have told that story and reflected on it appropriately for the moment and enough. But the wise men are still on their journey. Jesus has not yet been seen by the world. In years when we haven't had everything in the building topsy-turvy and have been able to find things, though actually we did pretty well. Uh, Can I just say thank you to all those who uh, sorted out where stuff was and made sure we had a tree and we had the candles and we had the costumes for the nativity play and there were moments when we thought that wasn't going to happen. So thank you for that. But we have also got a little crib scene that we couldn't find this year. And we keep it out in the foyer and we add to it as Advent goes on. And then on Christmas Day, we put the Christ child in the manger. And then in other years, we have then had the Magi journeying, getting nearer and nearer so that they arrive at Epiphany. We couldn't find it this year. Maybe next year we'll do that again. But we are not there yet. If we did have that crib scene out there, the Magi would be somewhere on the other side of the foyer. They haven't yet got there. So where are we? This betwixt and between time. This day that matters, since we don't only, or even most of us, uh, always live simply by the church calendar. We live by our society's calendar quite properly. And New Year's Day is a significant day. New beginnings and all that. New hope, new possibilities. All the stuff that matters about how we mark the turning of the calendar. For some of us, it is a bigger deal than others, and I'm a Scot, and yes, it is a big deal. But on a social level, living in our world, living in our community, New Year's Day matters. And yet, in terms of the account of our faith, our ways of marking that communally, this is betwixt and between. Jesus is born, but the wise men have not yet arrived. The full seeing of Jesus by the world has not yet happened. And I love it when New Year's Day falls on a Sunday for precisely that reason. It's the Sunday when we can reflect in our worship something of the truth that we live every day as we live in faith and hope in the world as it truly is. See, if we're here at all, it is because we have a sense of faith and commitment to this story of God and the world. We'll tell it in different ways. We'll understand different things about it. We come from different backgrounds and we're always, if we are honest and serious about our faith, we are always growing and changing and asking new questions and finding new answers. But somewhere in the center of it all is the conviction that this matters, that God is around, that the birth of this child is important. It means something, not just as a charming story that leads to some wonderful music and an excuse for a good meal, but something in the nature of who we are and how we are and the relationship that we seek and celebrate with God. But unless we are living in complete denial, with our eyes and our ears and our hearts closed, we also know we are living in a world that as well as being beautiful and rich and full of joy and wonder, is also full of horror and terror and despair. 
And what we hold on to or seek in our exploration of faith seems far away and on occasions meaningless in the faith of what we experience and see others experience. We live betwixt and between. The theological term for it is now and not yet. In Jesus, the kingdom has come, and in the world, it is not yet here. The baby is born, but the journey continues. And that's today. And that long chapter that we read, heard from Hebrew, the one that if we read it in worship at all, we usually only read the beginning and the end because it is so long. That whole chapter is about people living in between. The fact that we only read it in part, usually, is for very good reason. We are not generally accustomed to sitting and hearing long passages read. It's not our normal kind of discourse today, and that's, that's fine. Well, on one level, it's fine. But there is something lost in not reading at all, in skipping to the end. We find it hard to wait. We want to get through all the boring stuff. We want to get round all the obstacles. We want to get everything sorted out and get to the good bit. And so today, on this betwixt and between day, we have read the whole. Not because I particularly want to pick up on any of the stories, though any one of them examined in detail leads to interesting reflection and new understanding of what it is to live in faith. But we read it all because the very act of sitting, listening to it all, and even then, finding that the end point is not, and it's all over, folks, but an encouragement to keep going, and that with endurance, that's an important part of living in faith. When I was a student here, the minister was a man called Howard Williams. Some of you will remember him well, and knew him much better than I did. But I was very fortunate to be a student around him because he talked to me about being a minister. And one thing in particular that stuck with me, when I was in college, we were trained well in how to engage and draw people in and help people stay involved with and, in the right way, entertained by or connected with worship. And that was particularly true in terms of working with children. We were taught and encouraged that involvement and activity and creative forms of worship that children could relate to were very important, and I believe that. But here at Bloomsbury at that point, in the service, not in the then Sunday school, where there was a lot of good and creative work done, but when we were all, t all together here in worship, there was very little in the way of what might be called concession to the presence of the children. Indeed, there was little concession to anybody taking part, except through hymns and listening. And there were re various reasons why that was the case, but one that Howard said to me several times when he was talking to me about my training and about what it meant to be a minister was that one of the things we learn in church is how to be bored. Now, some of you may remember hearing him say that. And he meant it quite seriously. Not that being bored is a virtue, and not that Howard was a boring preacher, but the sitting still, the just getting through it, the keeping going, doing what needed to be done, which in that instance was to attend to what was being said without being able to influence it, without being able to express ourselves, without perhaps showing off in any way, and discovering that that was okay. That we didn't need always to be active or in charge, or even if I can say this in the right way, paid attention to, as if our needs were paramount, as if being stimulated was important. We could just keep going and it was fine, and we were fine, and the world was fine, and that in and through that, things changed. 
Now, that was 30 years ago, and I'm more and more convinced he was on to something very important. Not on the whole that I set out to bore anybody when I'm leading worship, because as it happens, I do believe, as we did in the prayers this morning, that hearing many voices in worship is good. And that's not just to do with avoiding boredom. It is my conviction about we all come to worship, we all take part in worship. But the context in which we are living out our faith now is even more stimulation orientated than it was when Howard was talking to me. The presence of our phones that keep us in touch not just with individuals but through social media with the world. The proliferation of TV channels. The possibility of films available to us in so many ways, not just going to the cinema. But we can, we can download them, we can stream them, we have Netflix, we can do it all. The consumer boom, which is even more pronounced than in the 80s, you know it all. There is so much to take our attention and keep us stimulated and perhaps even overstimulated. And sitting still and doing nothing or just getting on with the boring mundane stuff is very rarely on our agenda, comfortably. Nor is keeping going at stuff that doesn't have an immediate payoff. It's not part of our normal world, our personal world, or our workplace. Many of you know I'm doing an MA at the moment, and I am loving it. Most of my classmates are very young. They're straight from undergraduate, and they're doing this degree as a step towards a research degree, and that's a step for most of them towards further academic work and publication and possibly a job. And as we talk, I realize that I am so privileged, because I am doing this, because I want to do it. And learning simply for the sake of learning, taking time just to explore the ideas and wrestle with them, cannot be on these youngsters' agenda. They need to do well enough to get on to the next rung. And the university needs them to do well enough to justify its funding. And the whole thing is geared towards outcome and productivity and the end point. And it can affect us in church too. What have we done? Well, there's the building. We have done that this year, sort of. But what else have we done this year? What has been new? What has been started? What have we achieved? How have we changed the world for the better? How have we advanced the cause of the kingdom? Now, I'm not saying those questions don't matter. What we are doing and how we are serving, how we are growing, all of that has a place. But being here, being faithful, being followers and explorers and those who look for and long for the kingdom is not about having it all sorted or achieving it all or getting to the end. It's about taking our place in the betwixt and the between, knowing that there is a reason for what we are doing and indeed for who we are, but knowing that the kingdom is not yet come. We are still on the journey and there is more to come. And the journey matters. Living the kingdom into being is significant and not to be taken lightly. But it is not finished and it will not be finished with us. We often don't see quite where we're going and what we're achieving, if anything. In the words of Hebrews, we do not yet receive what is promised either. But it is promised. There is one who has gone before us. The journey is not without a goal. And when we celebrate communion, that's part of what we're saying. This is food for our journey. And the promise that there is a goal. We share bread and wine, and that connects us with the past, with the root of the story. Christ has come into the world, and the world was not able to cope, and so he was killed. And many of those who have lived in faith in him since then, even until now, are also those of whom the world is not worthy. And they suffer and they die. And the incarnation, the God with us, 
that shapes who we are and how we are, that is fully present in Jesus, is shown to us in so many other lives of faith and love. That is the basis on which we live and act. But it's not all there is. When we celebrate communion, we are not just remembering a dead hero. We are encountering and trusting in the risen one. The one who endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. It's an odd phrase. But at its heart, the right hand of God is the seat of, of power. That's where in the monarchical world that the writer knew, the person who would carry out the will of the monarch sat. Sitting in that seat of honor was to do with being the representative, the presence of the monarch. And that is the Jesus in whom we trust. He is the presence of God and he is raised from the dead. All that would resist the kingdom that comes in Emmanuel, in God with us, all that tries to stop God being with us, all that refuses to be with God, all that was summed up and exerted itself in killing the incarnate one, and it's all defeated, and Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And when we share in communion, we're not only looking back, we are looking ahead. We are reconnecting with and recommitting to the faith that there is a journey that leads somewhere. That the kingdom does have reality and we are part of its coming. We are not all there is. There are those who have been before us. There will be those after us. And in and through us all, the kingdom takes shape because we are all trusting, all following the risen one who could not be defeated by death and whose resurrection is the guarantee that evil will not finally win and there is redemption, there is renewal, there is recreation. Jürgen Moltmann, the great German theologian, writes of it thus. In the promises, the hidden future already announces itself and exerts its influence on the present through the hope it awakens. Because we know what is ahead in the promise, we live differently here and now and the kingdom begins to come. And so it's fitting that on this betwixt and between day, with the birth behind us and the revelation to the world recognizing the coming one ahead of us, it's fitting that we celebrate communion. And it's fitting that we welcome a new member, which we will also do this morning. Both signs in different and related ways that we are on a journey. For here is companionship. Here is nourishment. Here is promise. Here is direction. And yes, there are times when it's boring. There are times when it appears to be going nowhere. There are times when we are out of step because we do not seem to achieve what we set out to do. But we're part of the long game. We're part of the eternal kingdom, grounded and made real in the resurrection of the one who is God with us. And we look for and we dare to work for the reality of that kingdom of justice and joy and hope here among us and through us in our world. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.